Hello, and welcome to the Silmarillion Seminar. This is the beginning of a new feature on the Tolkien Professor podcast, and I'm very excited about it. I know that many people have a hard time with the Silmarillion, and I've been wanting for a long time to do a detailed discussion of it. This seminar is going to be a weekly discussion in which we work through the Silmarillion a chapter at a time between now and probably the beginning of summer 2011. I hope you all enjoy listening along. Let me explain a few technical matters before I get to the recording. The seminar has about 15 to 20 members, so I wanted to use a software that would allow us all to interact in real time as non-chaotically as possible. I'm using the Adobe Connect software, which allows me to call on individuals and activate their microphones when they want to ask a question or make a comment, and that's been working out reasonably well. During a session, there's also a live text chat going on, and you will hear that I occasionally make reference to something that one of the participants has typed in the chat box. The audio quality is okay, with two significant exceptions. When this first session was recorded on December 8th, I had a really bad head cold. In fact, I thought all day I was going to lose my voice entirely. I didn't quite, but I sound pretty ugly, and I apologize for that. The other issue is a strange thing that Adobe Connect does in a few places to the sound quality of the recording. There are about a half dozen moments when the sound distorts strangely, making my voice sound like the voice of a Star Wars droid. Actually, I think it's kind of a cool effect, but I do wish I could make it happen on cue instead of randomly. In any case, I hope that you'll be able to bear with these little quirks and enjoy the discussion despite them. Does anybody have anything that you would like to start with? Let's see here. Jeremy, go ahead. Yes, but before I started reading the Silmarillion, I found that reading Tolkien's letter to Milton Waldman was incredibly useful, just as kind of an outline of, of what's going on. And it doesn't. It does give some specific details, but I think it's it's just incredibly useful to read before actually getting into the Silmarillion itself. Yeah, it's true. I mean, that's like the the you know the the short version of the whole thing, um, which is extremely useful. Um, it's good to have a good uh, general outline of the story in your mind. Again, the problem that I you know I've said this before. One of the big problems that people tend to have with the Silmarillion is that it's um, they p- people get bogged down in the details. People get bogged down in um, all the names and all the stuff. And the 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 letter to Milton Waldman really does give you a good. Um, a good general introduction. Uh, yeah, it is the you, you can find the letter if you have the second edition um, of the the Silmarillion, um, the one that I have linked to uh, on my website in my bookstore. It contains uh, well, at least a big selection from from this letter. Uh, it's a 1951 letter. I actually don't have my copy of the letters on me. Um, if anybody. If any of you actually ha- happen to have a copy of the selected letters with you, uh, and you could note the number of that letter in that edition, that'd be really cool. But I, I don't happen to have mine with me, so I don't, I don't know it. Um, but yeah, Jeremy, that's a that's a great piece of advice um, for people to kind of get start off with an overview. Let's see which audiobook has the best pronunciation. Um, well, unfortunately, there's not a whole lot of uh, of selection as far as unabridged audio is concerned. There's really just one edition of each of each one. Um, uh, Robert Inglis's pronunciation is generally better than uh, Martin Shaw's, the guy who does the Silmarillion recording. He makes some mistakes, m- many more mistakes in pronunciation than Robert Inglis does. But uh, 
though actually, of course, by far the best pronunciation that you'll get is in the recording of Tolkien reading it uh, uh, in the you know the, the Tolkien audio collection, which has all of the uh, recordings of 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 Tolkien himself um, reading his uh, poems and things. You can you know hear a lot of his pronunciation, certainly of the Elvish. Um, and at the end of that recording, the sort of the last parts of it is Christopher reading from the Silmarillion, uh, and it's uh, it, it's interesting to hear him pronounce things. There were some things that. I found I was pronouncing wrong uh, when I listened to that for the first time. Um, as, for instance, the mountain upon which Manwe and Varda live uh, is apparently... Christopher pronounces it Teniquitil, uh, and I did not have the stress on that syllable. Um, let's see, you can buy the Tolkien audio, and there is shamefully not a link for it on my webpage, uh, which I am hoping to... Uh, it was just a complete horrifying oversight on my part, um, but I will be rectifying that soon, I hope. Um, and Laura has found the letter. Uh, letter 131 is the letter that we're referring to, and it is... Uh, the letter that he wrote, basically, this was his pitch to try to get the Silmarillion published during his lifetime, which didn't work. But um, anyway, so the, that's a, a it's a really valuable resource. Yeah, page one forty three, as Nick says, excellent, fantastic. Um, let's start with some pronunciations. Um, can uh, just people uh, just sort of list out names uh, that you would like to uh, to hear from? Okay, let's see. Justin asks, since the accent is primarily on the second syllable, why put it on the third for the Ainu Lindele? Um, well, the basically, the best answer there is you think of what Ainu, uh, uh, Ainu Lindele means. Um, it, you know, it breaks, it's the the song or the music of the Ainu or Ainu uh, and Lindale, uh, which means the uh, song or music. Um, and so, you know, it, it, often in Elvish words, you put the stress on the second to last syllable, but there it just, it doesn't work with uh, the whole thing. Ainu Lindale doesn't, doesn't, doesn't really worry. It just, cause, I mean, the whole thing's a compound word. Um, so, uh, so yeah, that's, that's, uh, you tend to put the stress on the first and the third syllable there because that's where they would fall naturally on those words independently. Um, other pronunciation questions, words, names that you would like pronounced? No, anyone? One question that people will sometimes have is where does the stress fall in Iluvatar? And it tends to be the, the, the second the second syllable there, Iluvatar. Um, you'll notice in most editions of the Silmarillion, you get the accent marks over names. And the accent marks are primarily designed uh, to assist in pronunciation, actually. So you can see that the accent mark has been put over Iluvatar, um, over the U. So that's how you know you're supposed to, you're supposed to put the stress there. Yeah, Mike asks, is Iluvatar meant to echo in some way, uh, you know, illuminate like it seems to refer to light? Um, it, Yeah, I mean, it does sound like it, it's hard to resist that connection. But I have to say, I think it's I think it's uh, I think it's a coincidence, um, basically, because the word doesn't mean that in Elvish. Uh, you know, he's building these words out of these languages that he himself is des- is designing, and I th- and and so you have to you have to really consult the Elvish etymologies uh, to to really see what the what the connections of the words are. They often uh, so they will sometimes make puns in English, or they'll they'll sometimes you know sound like or look like English words. Often that's really just a coincidence, and I think this is that. I think that's a coincidence too. Um, but uh, but I don't know. Let's see two other, uh, two uh, a few other pronunciation questions. El Dalie, 
uh, stress on the second sil- syllable there, and then ea, uh, ea. Uh, it's two syllables. And again, if you look at how it's printed in in almost all the editions, if you look at how it's printed, you have the the two dots, the little the little umlaut above the above the the a, and that's uh, those are to indicate that this vowel. Those are put over a vowel in order to make sure that it gets pronounced. Um, and when you have a double vowel, uh, just like two vowels side by side, um, as in ea, he puts it over there to make sure that you know this is supposed to be two syllables. It's not supposed to be just uh, just one syllable. So ea and aule um, are would be both of those two syllable words. Aule, the au sound uh, sounds like au, so aule. Okay. Other issues. I mean, the the. I mean, I guess we we could sort of move on to some kind of bigger questions. Uh, there's a lot to. I mean, there's so much to talk about in the Aina Lindale, um, and it's sort of hard even to know where to start. Um, oh, Laura has a question. Let me let me call on you here, Laura. Yeah, I'd like to ask um, about the difference between the name Eru and the name Iluvatar. Do they mean the same thing, or are they are they two different different uh, different meanings there? I, they're called, um, they're in two different names or rather they're in two different languages. Um, uh, it's interesting the way that he points it out. That is, he, he doesn't just say there is, you know, Eru who is also sometimes called Iluvatar in a different language. Uh, I mean, the way that he's, the way that he says it is there was Eru, the one who in Arda is called Iluvatar. So he doesn't just say, like, among some people in Arda, he is called Iluvatar, and among others, he is called Eru. Uh, the, way that he make, the way that he makes it sound is that Eru is his real name, um, and Iluvatar is just what he's called, you know, by the elves. Um, I can't remember offhand the etymologies uh, of Iluvatar, um, but he... <sighs> In the original drafts, I was just rereading uh, from the Book of Oz Tales, the first draft of the music of the Ainur um, earlier today. And in the music of the Ainur, he talks about the language of the gods, um, you know, that, that the Valar themselves had a language, which is different from any of the languages that the Eldar speak, and that eventually the Eldar don't really speak in it. And, it, it, you know, the, the Valar speak in the Eldar's language um, to talk with them, and then they don't talk in their own language among the elves that much. Um, so I'm sort of wondering if that's kind of a relic from that. Let's see, uh, Joe? Yeah, um, I was just wondering, uh, it says when Melkor first started his own theme that uh, there were some that attuned their music to his. I was wondering if that would be Maiar, possibly, and then also um, about the three different themes that happen. Uh, I was also, it, if those themes are related to the other stories later on in the Silmarillion. Uh, yes, that is a sort of a qualified yes I would give to that. Um, first off, I would say, uh, okay, let me uh, approach them first. Other uh, the others who attune their the others who who who, who attune, attune their music to him. Yes, those would be Maiar. I mean, all of the people that we see um, his servants following him um, would be those who came along with him. And basically this is sort of following, following the same trend in the story as, uh, as in the, as in the traditional Christian story of the fall of Lucifer and the, the, the many angels who maintained allegiance to him and fell with him. Um, as you know, of course, you know, the Balrogs are even referred to as demons at various times. Um, so they, they, they do operate like that. 
the question I was actually just addressing this uh, on my Facebook page the other day. The distinction between Valar and Maiar is something that can easily be overstated, I think. Um, it's sometimes tempting. Sometimes people will speak of the, the Valar and the Maiar as if they're like two different species. They're just like two totally different things. Um, they're not. They're all Ainur. The Ainur, the music of the Ainur, this, this, this group of people, you know, the, this choir of creatures who are singing at the beginning are all of them put together. There's, there's the Valar and the Maiar, or those who will become the Valar. And those who will be called the Maiar are—they're all Ainur. Ainur is the uh, the Ainur is the, the the general classification of them. And among the Ainur, some of them are greater, and some of them are lesser, and some of them uh, have a broader understanding, sort of know more of the mind of Iluvatar, and some of them know less, or sort of have a more specialized understanding of it. Um, and so when Many of these spirits, though not all of them, come down into Arda. We see that some of them are much more powerful and some of them less, some of them very focused. Uh, some of them, uh, you know, some of them have, you know, I, I, again, are sort of uh, have a broader authority and a broader power. Um, and in Tolkien's own mind, I mean, as these stories were developing from his first drafts uh, back in the late teens uh, and early 20s, <clears throat> all the way through his death, and he was revising these stories for 50 years, and he um, he definitely – things kind of shifted around. I mean, uh, the, it, who gets ranked among the great of the Valar and who are sort of comparatively minor um, changes from draft to draft. So, I mean, it was clearly a sort of a fluid situation in his head. Um, and I think that it's important for us to keep that in mind, you know, that you don't just think about this really solid line between the Valar and the Maiar, because there are many occasions on which we see, you know, that line really being blurred. Um, Many of the stories later on that we're going to get um, are really are, are going to involve that. I mean, certainly when we get to the character of Ungoliant, for instance, she is a she is a massively powerful creature, um, but you know, technically she's a Meyer. So, and you know, Sauron too. There's not all that much between Sauron uh, and some of the Valar as well. So, you know, it's it's it's. It's tricky, and we just we need to remember that they they were all involved in the song, and they are all important, and they're all part of the same part of the same group. There. Um, okay, let's see, John, you have been patient. One question that was on my mind was, for example, uh, the short term for Ainur, the singular term, is um, Ainu, and has yes. a very similar sound. Um, to um, Eru in some ways. I don't know if that was just coincidence or a term like Eluthingal. So with these terms, therefore, are they somehow related in the sense that they're all from like the same linguistic root in Quenyan or something? Or are we talking just like a coincidence um, being repeated? Well, that's a good question. I think my suspicion there actually would be neither. Um, that is neither a coincidence nor an actual derivation between the two, primarily because um, the similarity in the three of them is the ending. Um, and the ending would uh, be less likely actually to have to do with the etymology and more to do with the morphology of the language. And also, Eluthingo, I think, to be in a different uh, language. Um, but here, when I'm 
speaking of the languages, I'm speaking on my on my I'm standing on my weakest ground. Uh, I know much less about the languages than I should. Uh, I am I am a very paltry linguist, uh, which is a deep item of shame for 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 a Tolkien scholar. I have to admit, uh, since Tolkien himself was so dedicated to the languages, uh, but but sadly, it is true. It is one of the things that I am uh, uh, that I'm really looking forward to changing at some point. Elizabeth, you had a question about the themes, which was good because that was brought up and then we kind of dropped it. So let's get back to that. Yes. Um, I've always wondered, are the first two themes, were they like rough drafts and the third theme was the one that was used to make the world or were all three themes involved in the making of the world? I've just always been confused about that. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, I think they're not rough drafts in the sense of they are, you know, not um, not actually sort of a final like they get scrapped afterwards or something like that. That they're they're not only the warm up acts for the third theme. Um, in fact, we learn later um, in the Ainulin delay that that Manway was the chief instrument of the second theme. So we know that there's some significance there. I mean, Manway is really. Uh, as the chief instrument of that theme, and we see how significant he is and how important he is, and so therefore, there's there's it, this is not just like he's not just like the warm up act, obviously, and has a huge role to play in the playing out of the third theme and the central point of the third theme. Um, the thing that there are two things that we learn about the the third theme, uh, uh, which is which of course the, the third theme is so heavily emphasized there. One of course is its its beauty and its sorrow, um, and of course it's the sorrow from which its beauty chiefly came, and also the fact that the children of Iluvatar come in in the third theme. Um, so the third theme is really important, but it's not its not the whole thing. And I think one thing that's difficult to... Uh, that's hard to keep in mind and can be really confusing about the themes is I think, I, I think that we need to resist thinking too mechanically and too rigidly chronologically about the themes. Um, and here's what I mean by that. And this actually gets back uh, to a question, Joe, I think you asked before, um, but w- which I kind of skipped over in answering other things. And that is, can we see in the themes anticipations of stuff that happens later in the Silmarillion? And I, the answer to that, I think, is yes and no. Yes, in the sense that we can see foreshadowed many of the kinds of struggles and, and difficulties, I, I, you know, the, 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 the war, and not only the, the fact of the conflict between Melkor uh, and the other Ainur, but also the nature of, its, of that conflict as it's described and the way especially that the third theme overcomes it and the final sort of image of contrast that were given between the third theme and uh, and and the discord of Melkor. Those are all things that I think do provide us with cues, and that we can see those cues being taken up later on in the Silmarillion. But I don't think um, if we try to do it, as I said, sort of rigidly or mechanically, and look at it chronologically and say, okay, like where's the Battle of Sudden Flame? You know, where's the Battle of Un- where? You know, where's where's the Near Nithar Noidiad? And uh, you know, uh, can we see Turim Turimbar specifically? In, and no, I don't think so, because I I don't think that it's necessarily chronological in that rigorous way the vision that they remember there are three not only are there three themes there are sort of three movements uh that we get in the uh the whole kind of creation process the first 
step is the music. The entirety of the music and the whole music is played. And the music of the Ainur contains this, the, the narrative of all creation, but it also contains... Um, Again, not just not just the story, but like the whole the whole theme and idea of creation. Then you get the vision in which they see the story, and there the vision is chronological, and it cuts off at some point. They don't see it all the way through to the end, and then we actually start up time for real um, after Eru says "Ea B," and everything actually comes to exist. So, um, so I think it's important to keep that in mind that the music. It's not just like, okay, you know, like this measure of the music would correspond to this particular year. Uh, I, I don't think that that's exactly how the music works. So, um, so again, I think that we need to be, the, that we need to be careful. Um, and that's why, therefore, also, the, the, the nature of the thing, I think that the important thing to look at in the themes is we get this clear correlation with Iluvatar's own attitude. Right. Um, that is, uh, you know, Melkor's discord begins. This is on on page 16 of uh, of the edition on the website. And uh, Eru lifts up his left hand. Uh, he's smiling and he lifts up his left hand and a new theme begins um, and it has a new beauty. And then he rises uh, and his countenance is stern. And then the third theme begins. So the first theme is the first one that they're singing. The second theme, he's smiling and he lifts his left left hand. The third one is his countenance is stern and he lifts his right hand. And then in the end, uh, he rises a third time and his face is terrible to behold. And he raised up both of his hands and in one chord, deeper than the abyss, higher than the firmament, piercing as the light of the eye of Iluvatar, the music ceased. Um, So I think that we can see... Looking at sort of the attitude and the response of Iluvatar is, I think, really important there, rather than thinking about it as a kind of a sequential narrative. Okay. Let me see to that in a second. Yeah, okay, Chris wants to talk about the themes. Okay, I, I guess uh, when I was thinking about the themes, and this something that uh, I think the Dalaquenta ends on, as far as the concept of Arda Mard versus yes. how Arda was supposed to be sung and that the music at the end of time would be sung as it was intended. And I guess I'd always kind of envision maybe the first theme really countenance to what Arda was supposed to have been before Melkar started uh, down his road. Um, just a thought I had, just thought I'd throw it out there. Yeah, no, I mean, I think it's a really good thought, Chris. Um, we do see Iluvatar responding to Melkor uh, and to the uh, and to the the the, the discord. So um, I, I agree. The first one is the one that he gives them in the beginning, and so there is a sense of uh, of fall and recovery in the music, and that the music is going to be played aright someday. Um, so I agree with that. There is going to be a kind of a restoration. Now, the third theme, which is, it's the second to last, the last being the final chord, which brings everything to an end. Um, but the fi- the, 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 the third theme is in this sense sort of the most reactive. It's the one that finally is overcoming him, and it's the really sad one. And so we can see sorrow, we can see suffering, um, and not just suffering. Suffering is intrinsic in the discord already. Melkor has introduced suffering through his act of rebellion. Um, 
now, but what uh, what Iluvatar has done in the third theme, um, which is really one of my favorite parts of the whole Ina Lindale, um is when you see the effect that it has, how it uh, uh, in the description of the third theme, um, how uh, the discord is is uh, it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice, but it seemed that its most triumphant notes were taken by the other and woven into its own solemn pattern. The suffering, the sorrow that has been introduced to the world through the discord is being taken by a Luvatar and woven into the music itself. So yes, now the music is different than the original conception. And it has, I agree with Chris, in one sense fallen short uh, or, or fallen away from the original perfection of the, of, 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 of the initial conception of a Luvatar. But the result is not something that's just second rate. The result is something that is even more beautiful than the original than the original one was um one thing that i would say i was i I was really struck by this when i was reading this earlier today i mentioned already that i had been i was sort of rereading the book of lost tales version which is uh sort of the first draft uh of the music of the einor and i was really struck by a passage there where tolkien really emphasizes the introduction of suffering uh by by melkor and um i'll read this passage it's a little bit long but um uh, but I, I found it really striking. Uh, in the Ainulindale version, um, Melk or Iluvatar emphasizes when he's sort of going back over it. You know, he talks about the extreme cold and extreme heat uh, that are now going to happen as a consequence of of, of Melkor's actions. Um, but he's much more blunt back in the Lost Tales version. Um, Iluvatar says, "For lo." Through Melko have terror as fire, and sorrow like dark waters, wrath like thunder, and evil as far from my light as the depths of the uttermost of the dark places, come into the design that I laid before you. Through him has pain and misery been made in the clash of overwhelming musics, and with confusion of sound have cruelty and ravening and darkness and loathly mire and all putrescence of thought or thing, foul mists and violent flame, cold with Without mercy been born, and death without hope. Yet is this through him, and not by him? And he shall see, and ye all likewise, and even shall those beings who must now dwell among his evil, and endure through Melko misery and sorrow, terror and wickedness, they shall declare in the end that it redoundeth only to my great glory, and doth but make the theme more worth the hearing, life more worth the living, and the world so much the more wonderful and marvelous, that of all the deeds of Iluvatar it shall be called his mightiest and his loveliest. Uh, and I also love the fact that uh, the, the next sentence after this quotation is, Then the Ainur feared and comprehended not all that was said, and Melko was filled with shame and the anger of shame. So, I mean, that's... Uh, he he's getting at all that still. He's left that concept in uh, in the Ina Lindelay version, but he really hammers it. I mean, the putrescence and the cruelty and uh, and the torment and the death and despair, uh, all of these things. And that's kind of a a, a good preview of the rest of the Silmarillion too. Uh, it's it's uh, it's pretty striking. Um, let's see, uh, Mike, you wanted to talk about the attitude of Iluvatar here. Yes. Um... I just wanted to ask the question, uh, third full paragraph from the beginning. Um, Show forth your powers in adorning this theme, comma, each with his own thoughts and devices, comma, if he will. 
And I'm yeah. wondering about that last clause, if he will, and if that first request of the creator to his creations is if that if that first statement to them is a request and not a command. And I find that very interesting if the first statement is indeed a request and not a command, because as a reader of The Lord of the Rings, requesting versus commanding is something that comes up again and again. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. I mean, I think it's a really important thing to remember in the Ayana Lindaway and thinking of the music itself, especially that what is happening here is not just Iluvatar issuing orders and, and things obeying. It's not even just that he's not, um, he's not playing music. He is not even like a conductor. Um, you know, he, he is not like a musician playing on an instrument. He is not even like a conductor conduct, conducting an orchestra. He is the audience. He's sitting back. He has he has devised the theme. He has conceived the music, and he has delivered it to them and says, here is the music I want you to play. But they're not reading sheet music. They're improvising it. They're each one, if they will. And, uh, Mike, I think you're really, uh, you're really right to emphasize that. He, even, he makes it optional for them. If you choose to do this, do it. And, of course, they choose. Now, Melkor is choosing, too. And I think, see, this is a thing that people often misunderstand about the re- the nature of the rebellion of Melkor. Melkor is not what, – what he does isn't bad because he adorns it with his own thoughts. That is, it is not true that uh, adherence to a Luvatar means uniformity and it means – submission and uh, sort of extinction of, of, of self and just like, you know, don't do your own thing, you know, do Iluvatar's thing. That's not at all the point. Everyone is doing their own thing. Everyone is bringing forth the music, uh, you know, they're all adorning it. The difference is what Melkor adorns it with and the direction in which he takes it and his desire to, to make it, uh, uh, to make his own music more prominent. His problem is not that he's improvising. Everybody's improvising. Uh, his problem is that he wants to have a solo and that's what makes it, uh, what makes it such a big deal. Um, but I agree. I mean, I think, you know, uh, Mike, uh, that, that one for if, if you will. Um, you know, or if he will there, um, you know, in that phrase, you can see, I think a really crucial point about the entire, um, theology of the Ainu Lindale. Um, it is remarkable the extent to which the free will of the creatures of Iluvatar is foregrounded throughout this. All of creation itself is conceived in the music of the Ainur as essentially an artistic sub-creation of created beings. they, They, of course, can't make creation. They can't make the world. They can't make it real, that is. They can conceive it artistically. Uh, Only Iluvatar has the power to say, Ea, let it be. But what he does, as he explains, is give life and being to this thing which they have conceived. Um, but again, they are their wills are are involved here from the beginning. Let's see. Uh, I'm trying to figure out who to call next here. Uh, Jack, let me call on you here. Yeah, the last paragraph when we learn that uh, this whole story, the Ainulindale, is as told to uh, the elves uh, by the Valar. So I think that opens up a whole uh, can of worms, but a lot of interesting points. Um, number one is we have these, you know, otherworldly beings um, who are tasked with explaining this to um, 
much lesser beings, even though they're they're elves, there's still there's still a huge gap. I mean the uh, the Valar, you know, lived in a timeless place. Just understanding what it's like not to be in a, a linear uh, universe uh, is hard to understand. So I think that opens up the possibility that the Valar uh, may have used metaphor to describe these events to the elves. For example, the music, uh, it might not, not be music as we understand it, but that's the best way for them to describe it to the elves who could understand it that way and so forth. What do you think? I, Jack, I think it's a really great way to think about it. I mean, there are some places in which I think it's obvious that metaphor is being used in exactly the way that you describe. I mean, for instance, um, and then the voices of the Ainur, like unto harps and lutes and pipes and trumpets and vials and organs, and like unto countless choirs singing with words. Um, in other words, it, it's saying it's like that, you know, trying to give these mortal creatures some conception of what the choir of the Ainur was like. Um, of course, they're not, I mean, would you actually try to picture that? Okay, so some of their voices sounded like harps, you know, exactly like, like vile, like stringed instruments. Um, you know, so, so you can see like there, it, it, it is explicit. I am trying to give you some way to comprehend, um, what was going on here. And so I'm going to compare it to something that you're familiar with. Um, and, uh, another moment that I think of in the Aino Lindaway, uh, Jack, that really brings home the point that you were making there is when Iluvatar takes them and he shows them the vision. Um, we think first on page 17, uh, right after they stop the music and, uh, uh, the last sentence of the second paragraph after the break at the end of the music. But Iluvatar arose in splendor, and he went forth from the fair regions that he had made for the Ainur, and the Ainur followed him. So, okay, so we're told that uh, the Ainur live... It was like th there are these regions that he's made for them to live in, and that the regions that they live in are fair, right? They're beautiful. Okay, so they live in this beautiful region. Well, that seems fine, except then that we learn after this that they had never had sight, you know, that, that they, that, you know, he, he, he gives them sight now where before was only hearing, um, you know, so well, if they didn't have sight before, in what sense were the regions that they lived in fair? Well, it's not to say that they can't be, but they clearly are in a way that we can't relate to directly, you know, um, what kind of connection, what kind of sensory perception did they have? Well, you know, we, we, we were told they didn't have anything which correlated to, to, to vision, to eyesight. Um, but clearly they had other things. So I, can, I think that's another place, uh, Jack, where we can see the fact that this is a story that's being framed uh, in a way for, for – uh, limited creatures uh, to understand. So there is clearly some metaphor going on here. And I think that that's another reason why um, we can't be too mechanical in our attempts to understand, you know, like the music or to try to interpret the music and, and sort of connect it to events and things, because um, even the introduction of themes uh, to thinking of the introduction of the three themes chronologically, like as if they are three ages of the world or something. I don't think we can do that exactly um, because it's not this story that we're getting. This story that we're told at the very end of the, of the Ainu Lindaway is the story that the Valar themselves told 
to the elves, um, this story is not like this isn't the way it really happened. This is the only way that the elves themselves could com- could could uh, could comprehend it. Um, yeah, Jack, you can go ahead and follow up this. Yeah, and the I I agree with what you're saying, and like when I was reading it, even when it says Iluvatar raised his right hand and his left hand, so we start thinking that he has a body. Um, right. But later on, we learn that when the Valar descend into Arda and they need bodies, they don't look to Iluvatar. They look to um, their vision of the children of Iluvatar when they when they need uh, a form. So even that right hand and left hand, that's just a metaphor for, you know, his judgments or his pronouncements. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, Jack, I think that's a great point. You can see uh, also... Uh, the, the, if you look at the wording about his facial expressions, similarly to you know, as if he has you know a face with like you know a, you know a nose and a, 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 a you know features like ours, but you can notice then Iluvatar arose and the Ainur perceived that he smiled, and we get it again. Uh, you know, then again Iluvatar arose and the Ainur perceived that his countenance was stern. So yeah, like the the sternness of his countenance, the raising of his right hand. Clearly, those are, I think, demonstrably metaphorical in exactly the way that you said. Um, None of these creatures have physical beings or bodies or anything, but it's being characterized in these terms so that – because this is the only way they know how to convey what the the attitude of Iluvatar was in that moment – yeah, I think that's. I think those are those are really great points, Jack. Um, let's see, uh, Joe. You've been uh, you've been really patient. Let me call on you here. The first question I kind of have kind of relates back to the smile. I just I thought it was very interesting that it expressed his emotion there as smiling, and I was wondering if thought thought maybe maybe he was smiling because he felt Melkor was trying to subcreate, or was it that he pitied Melkor because he knew what was coming, or was it kind of like haha, you really can't change anything the way you want to. It's going to work the way I want it to work. Um, I guess that was uh, really the first question I had. And then the other one was more of a yes answer, yes or no. Uh, it says the triumphant notes of Melkor's was taken from Luvatar's theme. I was wondering if that represented basically uh, what Luvatar said after that. You can't do anything on your own. It all comes from me. I was wondering if that was representative of that. Um, yes, yes. I mean, definitely, uh, though, let's see. Okay. If you look at the relation, especially between the third theme, um, of Iluvatar and Melkor's music, um, the incorporation, the sort of, well, not stealing exactly, but the, the incorporation that happens is from Melkor to Iluvatar. That is, we see there Melkor taking the, uh, or rather, sorry, Iluvatar taking the rebellion of Melkor and using that, uh, incorporating that into his glorious theme. Um, what Melkor is trying to do is trying to do is to drown out, um, you know, and it essayed to drown the other music by the violence of its voice. Um, and but its most triumphant notes, and that's the real sticker there, right? The, the most triumphant notes when Melkor is succeeding best uh, are the times when he, far from coming close to winning, are the times, in fact, when uh, uh, when he is actually contributing to the glory and beauty of Iluvatar's music most directly. Um, 
that's got a sting. But that brings me back to the smile. And I think the smile is really... I don't feel like I have a really good intuitive understanding of the smile because it doesn't feel right to say that he's smiling in mockery. Um, I mean, it would be easy enough, uh, you know, sort of from a human perspective to imagine Iluvatar up there being like, oh, yeah, come on, bring it, Melkor. You're you're so cute when you rebel. Uh, you know, I mean, it's 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 uh, it's definitely like easy enough to imagine that, as I say, from a human perspective, but, I, but that that just does not at all seem to fit or to, to resonate with the way that we see Iluvatar acting. Um, I mean, I think that what we see here, you know, I mentioned before Iluvatar responding to what Melkor does, and he clearly does, but I don't think that we need, I, I think that we have to be careful when we talk about responding, um, his responding to it. I from what we see of Iluvatar, I'm not thinking that he's being taken by surprise here, you know, that this is like mere improv that he's doing, uh, uh, that Iluvatar is doing in response to Melkor. Um, he smiles, I think, because he knows this is the direction it was going to go. Um, and ultimately, he is happy with the sort of the direction that it's going. Um, but... Uh, yeah, I mean, Joe suggesting in the chat here that it could be pity. Uh, I think, I think so, possibly. Um, yeah, I, I, I'm not sure. I'll, but also, again, I think it might. It corresponds not just like, not just to Melkor personally, but also to the theme, the second theme uh, that he's initiating. Um, the smiling face is the smiling face and the left hand are associated with the second theme. The stern face uh, and the right hand are associated with the third theme. And so I think that those things tell us perhaps more about the themes themselves, the nature of the themes themselves than about his attitude towards sort of Melkor personally. <laughs> Justin has in the text raised the, uh, question which was inevitable to come up sooner or later that is the question of uh, of predestination and free will uh in all of this um i'm tempted to try to dodge that because that's always such a uh a, an awkward uh philosophical discussion to have at some points but i don't think i shall uh because this work really confronts it. In fact, I would go further to say that i think that the Aino Lindele is one of the most uh one of the most striking literary treatments of the integration of predestination and free will that I know of. And so I, I, I don't, I don't think that we should dodge it. Um, but I don't want to just, uh, go off and, uh, uh, and, and talk about that. What do you guys think? Make a note in the chat. If you would like to respond to the predestination and free will issue, Alejandro, go ahead. Oh, that's right. You can't talk. Sorry. I forgot about that. Let's see. Alejandro, actually, if you type something, I could read it. Um, so why don't you go ahead and type? You can type sort of a longer thing, uh, and then I can read it. And then in the meantime, while you're typing, I will uh, I will call on Justin here. Go ahead and respond, Justin. All right. Well, it's, uh, it's always fun for me to talk about these because I love uh, pouring over uh, seemingly contradictory uh, topics. But um, at least in terms of Melkor, it, it would seem that the improvisation was not the problem. And 
it, it, it seems that his intent was the issue to take it in hand. The fact that not only did he seek to be his be yeah, as much as he could be, he sought to do it for his own glory. And that was what really comes out in the text, I think, in, in that he says, in that he points out that it is, he sought to raise himself above the other Ainur and to bring the glory to himself. Right. That's clearly where his sin is. That's clearly what he does wrong. Um, yeah, I mean, the 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 predestination and free will question. What I think is perfectly clear from Tolkien's mind here in this passage is that both are clearly happening. I mean, as as it, you know, based on that on that wonderful passage that Mike pointed out, it is perfectly clear that he is leaving their wills free in a remarkable way. They are free to contribute or not to contribute to the music. They are supposed to adorn the music uh, according to their own thought. Um, they are, you know, he emphasizes the freedom of their will. But at the same time, Iluvatar is in control. You just think about think about the intimacy with which this works. That is their own self-expression and their response to Iluvatar's will. When Iluvatar raises his hand or sort of whatever he's doing, which is described as raising his hand, when he raises his hand, this new theme springs up. Remember, they're all improv They're not following music or anything. So they're all res- just responding to him. I get freely responding to his, to his urging, to his... You know, to 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 his introduction, his desire to introduce this new theme. <clears throat> Are they doing it? Yes, they're doing it. Is he doing it? Yes, he's doing it. Um, you know, and there's no. You can't just say that it's one and not the other. So I think that that's kind of crucial to keep in mind, theologically speaking, philosophically speaking. Um, say this in my classes all the time. Um, by far the best explanation of predestination and free will <clears throat> that I know of from within the Christian framework is Boethius's Consolation of Philosophy. Um, that is by the Roman author Boethius, B-O-E-T-H-I-U-S, uh, and his work is called The Consolation of Philosophy. And the primary point to condense Boethius's excellent argument into like one minute the primary point that Boethius makes is that God is outside of time. God is not restricted to time and that the majority of the problems that we have uh, with predestination uh, and the, the, the reason that it seems to us that predestination uh, removes free will is that we imagine God and God's knowledge and God's plan happening within time. So if God has determined something from the beginning, if God knows in advance that this thing is going to happen and he is anticipating it and he's foreseeing it, then it, then it's not really free to happen, that it was already going to happen. And so therefore the choices that, that people appeared to make in bringing it about were just illusory and free will disappears. Boethius's point is, no, that's not the case. God is not in time. He's not in the past looking into the future and foreseeing what's going to happen and foreknowing and foreplanning. He's just seeing and planning. He has the same relationship with all of time. Uh, you know, he, he's, he's, he's entirely outside of time looking down on the whole thing. Um, so that's, and, and when you think of it in those terms, um, Boethius then goes on to make uh, sort of an even clearer argument, basically that the problem 
between predestination and free will, that this is really our problem. That is, they appear to contradict each other from our perspective, but does God know about things in the same way that we do? Uh, and Boethius argues, no, God's knowledge is far more perfect than our knowledge. And not just in the sense of like the difference between somebody who knows very little and somebody who knows very much. Um, he says it is like the difference in knowledge that you know a, a human has compared to a barnacle or something. Um, we just have different ways of knowing than crustaceans have. Um, you know, they have very limited, they, they can't, they can't perceive as much. They can't reason. Um, and that God has capacities that we don't have to us. These two things look simply contradictory, um, with God. It is not so, um, a couple of you have commented, um, yeah, Brandon just pointed out that's the problem of Payne's answer. Yeah, C.S. Lewis is is uh, leaning heavily on Boethius. Uh, C.S. Lewis was a really big Boethius fan, um, and uh, from reading Tolkien, from reading the Aino Lindway in particular, I'm pretty confident Tolkien was a pretty big Boethius fan too. Um, but I shouldn't spend my whole time talking about Boethius, though. You get me started on Boethius, I I, I will tend to uh, go off very 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 quickly. So uh, uh, I should. I should be cautious about overindulging uh, my love for Boethius here. Um, let me uh, let's call on somebody else. Let's see, Dusty. Let me let me uh, move on to you here. The question I have is primarily on. Let me read the the passage. Um, and some have said that the vision ceased ere the fulfillment of the dominion of men and the fading of the firstborn. Is that yeah. the reason the Valar and the Ainur do less as time goes on throughout the books? And do they have a guideline since they don't have a theme to follow? And how do they know what they're supposed to do from the end of the third theme once Lubitar has cut all the music off? What is their guidepost on what they're supposed to do next? That's a great question. Um, let me see. One thing that I would clarify uh, first, just to make sure, um, uh, because I think it's, it's, it isn't true. It, it isn't quite true to say that they don't know, uh, that they don't know anything about what's going to happen, that like the whole thing, that the whole thing is kind of, kind of a mystery. So it's easy to, um, sort of read that passage and get a, um, get a slightly wrong impression. Um, let's see, I'm looking for the passage here, just to do it from memory. Uh, the, the, the passage says, top of page 20, Dustin, thank you. For the history was incomplete and the circles of time not full wrought when the vision was taken away. Um, and some have said that the vision ceased ere the fulfillment of the dominion of men and the finding of the, and the fading of the firstborn. Wherefore, though the music is over all and the valor have not seen as with sight the later ages or the ending of the world. And what I would emphasize there is as with sight. They haven't seen it as with sight. Uh, they haven't. So in that sense, they haven't sort of seen the script. Other parts of the story, they've seen the whole story. They know what's supposed to happen, or at least have glimpses of what's supposed to happen. But you'll notice, although they haven't seen it with sight, though the music is overall, we're told. That is, they know... They know how it goes. But again, this is where I would go back to what I said about not being too rigid in how we think about the music that is sort of in direct translation of music to story or to historical narrative. Because how we see the music operating is is sometimes sort of as much thematically as it is narratively. Um, to give an example, 
uh, and this is alluding to an event that's going to happen a little bit later in the conversation that Yavana and Aule have um, when she's talking about the Ents, basically, um, sort of Manway consults and when they're talking, you know, she's like, this idea was in the song. And I, when she's saying that, she's she does not seem to be saying, hey, don't you remember the bit in the story where this happened? But rather this conception that I have, this idea that I have um, harmonizes with the music that we sang. This was part of the harmonies that we sang. Um, and I think that that's, uh, I, I would suggest, I think I have suggested in, a, in uh, at some other point that you can even see similar things. I think you can hear an echo of that in some of Elrond's words, especially at the end of the Council of Elrond. Um, you know, when he says to Frodo, if I understand to write all that I have heard, Frodo, um, this task is appointed for you. And there, you know, I I don't think he's saying, having evaluated everybody's proposal, I can see what is definitely the best and most efficient idea. Rather, it's like he's saying, if I'm getting, if I'm, if I'm hearing, you know, the echoes of the music here, if if I'm, if I'm sort of seeing how, if if I'm understanding the trend here, uh, the kind of story that's being unfolded, um, if I can, if, if I'm perceiving the way that this fits into the greater cosmic scheme, I think this is what's supposed to happen. Um, Again, it's very, very much less direct. Of course, Elrond has no direct memory of the music or access to it, but um, but as one of the wise, uh, he, you know, it, it's one of the things that it means to be wise, right, is to be sort of more in tune with that. Um, so I think that it's important to remember that the music sort of works in that way. So again, Dusty, going back to your passage there, um, wherefore, though the music is overall, the Valar have not seen as with sight the later ages or the ending of the world. They don't know what's going to happen. They, they, they know... They know how the song goes, but they don't know the narrative of what's going to happen. Um, now, going back to the first point in your question, does does this explain why they kind of disappear? Why we don't see them acting? You know, we don't have Orome riding across Middle-earth like he rides across Beleriand in, in the first stage. Um, possibly in some ways. I mean, it, there certainly seems to be a correlation as we get closer to the dominion of men and as the firstborn are fading more and more. In other words, as we're beginning to approach the time that this passage points to in the limitation of the of the of the Einar, of the, of the, the Valar's familiarity, we do that does correlate with their seeming to pull back a little bit more. Yet, necess- yet I, I think we have to be careful about that because it's not I, – I, I don't think the comparative inactivity or the apparent inactivity of the Valar in Middle-earth is actually a reflection of them doing less necessarily or rather that it's – you know, certainly not that it's like them being more and more clueless. Right. That like in the first stage, they're really, you know, they, they, they act a lot because they're confident because they're like, hey, I, I've seen this story. I know what I'm supposed to do and that we're supposed to imagine them as like the third age is going on that over in Valinor somewhere, the Valar are kind of fumbling around and being like, uh, I don't know. I'm not sure what's supposed to happen next. I think I'll just do nothing. I mean, that I think is definitely not what the Valar are doing. Um I think that they do act, and they are acting. Um, there are times even in the first stage, and we'll see some of these moments as we go through the Silmarillion, moments when it appears to the people in Middle-earth, even back in the first stage, that the Valar aren't doing anything, right? Melkor will taunt people with this, like, hey, the Valar have forgotten you guys. They don't care about Middle-earth. Well, no, they do care about Middle-earth. They've never forgotten, um, but they're not always acting in ways that are obvious and direct. And I think that that kind of 
not obvious and not direct action uh, is the kind of thing that happens more and more um, as the ages go on. So so I think we have to be careful. Um, but again, there's no question, Dusty, that there is a correlation between those two things. So I think that that's uh, I, th- I think that that's important. Um, uh, John, I see we, we've got you back here. I was just wondering about the imperishable flame or um, fire of Luvatar. How that works out, the secret fire? Yeah. He puts in the heart of Arda. Um, what's your input on that? I mean, is it a metaphor for life itself, like the Holy Spirit? Or what are we, where are we going with it, you know, with it here? Yeah, great question. The imperishable flame, the flame imperishable, is uh, a really interesting concept there. Um, I think that to go to go so far as to connect it with the Holy Spirit is, I think, going a little bit too far. Um, only in the sense of that that that's, I think, a little bit too specific. Um, perhaps broadly, I mean, if you're sort of understanding this as the principle of life, because um, that, uh, you know, was another thing that you said, and that does seem to be connected with it. If you look at the way in which the flame imperishable is mentioned, you have, uh, the first reference is when Iluvatar is talking to the Ainur, and since I have kindled you with the flame imperishable. So the flame imperishable, which is with Iluvatar, kindles the Ainur. So it seems to be uh, sort of at the heart of their own of their own life, of their existence. Um, and uh, similarly, uh, there's the reference, it's not to the flame imperishable, but this is at the, at the, the very bottom of 15 and top of 16. Uh, and it's referring to the music being played aright uh, at the end, after the end of days. Then the themes of Iluvatar shall be played aright and take being in the moment of their utterance. For all shall then understand fully his intent in their part, and each shall know the comprehension of each, and Iluvatar shall give to their thoughts the secret fire, being well pleased. So he kindles them with the imperishable flame. But then there's the secret fire that he doesn't give to their thoughts. And I think that, you know, sort of, if, if we connect three passages, we can see some interesting things here. First, the first one is the very first one that I read, that he kindles them with the flame imperishable. The second is uh, on the next paragraph there uh, at the top of 16. Melkor is searching for the for the for the imperishable flame he covets it he wants it but he doesn't find it of course cuz it's with Iluvatar i mean he's not going to just like you know find it under a doormat somewhere the imperishable flame is the principle of life with Iluvatar uh, itself but you notice when he talks about the music being played aright um now it's not just being creation life you know uh, existence all of these things are connected with the imperishable flame and Iluvatar is its source. It is with Iluvatar. He can give it to others, right? He can give being. Remember, he's the only one who can give being. They do the music. He shows them the vision. He's the one who says, Ea. And so he's setting the imperishable flame at the heart of Arda. Uh, show, I mean, shows it is now, right? Uh, now it is, it is that which is. It is now Ea because it, uh, he has given to it the imperishable flame. But now, but again, you notice the difference between the music that's going to be played at the end, after the end of days and the music that's being performed now by the choir of the Ainur is that there, see, they've got their music, but look at the separation between their music and the imperishable flame. They do their music. The whole music is over. And he's like, okay, uh, you know, that was great. Now I will give it the imperishable flame. Totally separate process. Right now, it will be. Whereas what he emphasizes is uh, when, after the end of days, the themes of Iluvatar shall be played aright, 
they will take being in the moment of their utterance. Right. So in singing, as they are uttered by the creatures, the creatures themselves will be enabled by Iluvatar to bring being and not just conception, not just artistic conception, but being, being in the moment of their utterance for all then shall fully understand, uh, then understand fully his intent in their part. And each shall know the comprehension of each and Iluvatar shall give to their thoughts the secret fire. Um, not just sort of taking it afterwards and saying, okay, yeah, I'm going to, I'm, I'm going to say Aeon now, but basically it's like he will find, he will give them actual, uh, sort of fully delegated authority over the secret fire itself. And that I think is, uh, uh, is really cool. Um, Yes, uh, uh, Laura has uh, reminded us of Gandalf's comment. I am a servant of the secret fire, uh, and I. This is, I think, pretty clearly what Gandalf was referring to, uh, and what we should be remembering uh, when we get to that moment. Um, but uh, and here, in order to really bring, you know, sort of finally bring together and make sense of this distinction between subcreation and creation, between. Uh, the sort of the imperfect knowledge that even the Ainur have at this point compared to the perfect knowledge and comprehension that they will have later on when their art, when their sub-creative art shall become creative art, um, shall be perfected and fulfilled. Um, I think you have to, it's really New Testament language that you have to go to when you look at the perfection, when you look at the depiction in Revelation of the new heaven and the new earth and what things are like there compared to now. Um, uh, Paul's reference to, you know, now we see through a glass darkly, but then face to face, then we shall know even as we are known. Um, you know, these are clearly ideas that are in Tolkien's head here. And I think if you want to see his own, him talking about these ideas, uh, that is especially this relation between creation and subcreation, um, uh, more fully, uh, it, you, you can see it in his poem, Mythopoeia, um, and his sort of glimpsing towards this, that there will come a day when the sub-creative art of limited, flawed human beings will be perfected. When we are perfected and joined unto God, then our own art will be part of his art. We will fully comprehend. We will know even as we are known. And, uh, you know, and then it, they shall be given being in the moment of their utterance and he shall give to their thought, the secret fire. Um, it's pretty cool stuff, but I think, I think that that's what, so that's a, a long and sort of indirect answer to a much simpler question. Uh, but a very important one, I think about the imperishable flame. Um, it is certainly, um, uh, Chris, you've commented, uh, that you view it as you know the force of primary creation. Uh, I, I totally agree that creation, existence, might be an even better way to talk about it than life, because it's not just life, like living things as opposed to dead things. Really, when you're talking about the, the secret fire and the imperishable flame, you're talking about stuff that exists compared to stuff that doesn't have existence of itself, uh, like the difference between the primary world and the secondary and a secondary world, uh, to, to use Tolkien's uh, sort of creative language about that. Um, yeah, yeah, I, that's that's very much how I conceive of the imperishable flame and, and sort of how it works. Uh, let's see, Jordan. Yeah, so there was a couple things, two things where that I feel like Iluvatar is wrong, and it's kind of disturbing to me. Um, okay. First, he tells the group that um, Melkor, that anything he does in attempting to change the music will actually become more wonderful 
which he himself hath not imagined. And I would think that, although I'm skipping ahead, uh, Huron and Turin Turambar would probably pretty strongly disagree that anything that Melkor can do is in fact going to turn out better for everyone involved. And then just uh, like um, two paragraphs later, he says that Melkor will discover all the secret thoughts of thy mind and will perceive that they are but a part of the whole and tributary to its glory. And again, at least by the end of our story, Melkor hasn't perceived any sort of tributary to its glory. And he doesn't seem to ever grasp the concept. And so I don't know if it feels like Iluvatar is in fact wrong. And I don't understand how that could even be a possibility. Right. That's a great question. Um, let me try to take those things separately. Um, the first question uh, that is, I mean, and I love your point about, uh, uh, you know, uh, Iluvatar's line about uh, things turning out to be far more glorious um, and your response, you know, let's ask uh, – the Hurin family and see and see what they have to say about that. Here again, I would go back to the language that yeah, that Tolkien used originally in his first draft, the the part that I read before from the music of the Ainur and the Book of Lost Tales, um, and he he he's much more explicit and he's much more full uh, in describing that. Um, I think that it's clear that Tolkien would not think that Hurin and Turin were in any sense a contradiction of this principle. Because um, he says, uh, let's see, and, and even shall those beings who must now dwell among his evil and endure through Melko misery and sorrow, terror and wickedness. So even those people just like the Hurin family, even those people who, who, for whom things are worst during their lives, declare in the end that it redoundeth only to my great glory, and doth but make the theme more worth the hearing, life more worth the living, and the world so much the more wonderful and marvelous, that of all the deeds of Iluvatar it shall be called the mightiest and loveliest. Um, now, that's kind of easy to say, and you can say, well, yeah, I, I don't see that happening. Like, does that happen, like, before or after Turin kills himself? Like, yeah, I, I agree. But here, I think, it's again, it's sort of the big picture, right? Um, Iluvatar is speaking in very big, very big picture terms here. And when he says to Melkor, um, and thou, Melkor, shalt see, uh, he's speaking in the future tense here, you know, you shall see. Um, that no theme may be played that hath not its uttermost source in me, nor can any alter the music in my despite. Um, and, you know, and that you, you will see that it's but part of the whole and tributary to its glory. Yeah, but what happens to them, what happens to the Valar, including Melkor, uh, in one sense, most including Melkor, is that he enters into time. Um, and that, a, a big deal is made of that when that happens. They descend into the world and they become, in a sense, limited by time because they operate within time exactly in the way that, according to Boethius, God does not. Okay, So their perspective on things becomes limited by the limitation of time. Um, Hurin, uh, of course, and Turin, all mortals and you know the sort of the elves and, and, and men, all of the children of Iluvatar are all of them restricted by time. Um, and live very much within that. Live very much within that during their lifetimes, yes. Um, does this mean that after death, you know, humans who suffer will look back and say, okay, now I see, now I understand, maybe. Is he referring to 
in that moment after the end of time when all of the choir of the Ainur and the children come together and and sort of collectively see it, possibly. I mean, he points to this moment. And again, this is where I just come back to the, that really beautiful language about, you know, the full comprehension and the, the this sort of this final full and intimate connection between Iluvatar and his creatures, which he prophesies you know which which we get that prophecy is going to come after the end of time not at the end of time after the end of time um when this whole uncomfortable limiting time thing is put aside entirely then at that moment they will see and it's you know i i also kind of want to come back to iluvatar's smile here you know <laughs> it's making me also uh want to irreverently quote uh, uh, the Princess Bride. You know, why are you smiling? Because I know something you do not know, right? Uh, and that's Iluvatar's response. I know something that you do not know. Um, yet. They don't know it yet. Uh, Melkor doesn't know it yet. Certainly human beings don't know it yet. But there will come a time when everyone will know. Um, and, th- and that time will be one, presumably for Melkor, one of, uh, of, of wailing and gnashing of teeth um, when he's going to recognize, yes, that uh, all of my most triumphant notes, dang it, they actually were incorporated into Iluvatar's most beautiful music. Uh, and all of the, you know, the moments when I thought I was being most successful in setting up my own shop and rebelling against him, um, you know, actually... Darn if I wasn't just like being tributary to his glory there. Um, and by contrast, those, the, the good who have suffered, uh, the good who have suffered evil rather than the wicked who have perpetrated evil through their choice, the good who have suffered evil will see the whole picture um, and will, Iluvatar tells us, smile along with him. Um, so... Yeah, yeah, but it's, but I know that in some ways that that kind of seems unsatisfying, um, and this I would say, all I could say about the way in which it seems like it seems like kind of a cop out. Like, okay, yeah, well, th- things are things are miserable now, but uh, you know, uh, trust me, don't worry about it. Like later on, there's gonna we're all gonna look back and laugh at this at some point. You know, like it, it'll all be fine. Like I know that that doesn't sound really satisfying, but. Um, the thing the one thing that i would say to try to moderate the unsatisfactory nature of that statement is the fact that um tolkien doesn't just shortchange it it's really unsatisfactory to say hey evil suffering whatever you know it's not really a big deal don't worry about it you know just 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 um try to ignore the suffering and keep in mind that you know big picture everything's cool um, if that's all that somebody says, then it's nauseating um, and it seems really unsatisfying because it's totally out of touch uh, with how the world really is. Nobody can say that the Silmarillion is out of touch with suffering and doesn't take suffering seriously. The pathos of this book uh, matches the pathos of any book that I know. I, I don't know of any work of literature which is more agonizing to read uh, than The Silmarillion. Um, you get pain and suffering and pain and suffering treated with dignity and seriousness and compassion. Um, he is going to spend, he, Tolkien, is going to spend a lot of time showing what things are like now and taking seriously what things are like now. But we start off very importantly, start off with this glimpse, with this promise. Um, Iluvatar's 
prediction. You know what? Trust me, this is all going to make sense. You will see. You probably don't see it now. You probably can't see it now. Um, because A, you're in the middle of time, and B, you're human anyway. Um, and so, therefore, you don't have an infinite brain. But there will come a time when you will see. And uh, so, yeah, I think it's uh, it's tricky. <laughs> it's tricky. Um, but I, th- I think that that's, that's kind of where it comes down. So that's so for those reasons, I don't think that e- in either one of those things, Iluvatar is being inaccurate. He's just speaking to the the much bigger picture and looking kind of further down the road. Though again, you notice even there, when I say he's looking further down the road, that time language has crept in there, right? I've talked about him like he's operating within time and seeing into the far distant future. Um, it's one of the one of the interesting things. Even when you're trying to resist that, it's really hard uh, to resist that kind of vocabulary. That is time time related vocabulary. Um, yeah, yeah. Nick, go ahead. Yeah, I'm interested in. Um possible inspirations outside of um, Christianity. We, we know that Tolkien was a very devout Catholic, and um, you can definitely see parallels with the Bible and, and this book, especially with the fall of Melkor, fall of Lucifer. Um, but there's also, I also see some other parallels with other uh, religions and other mythologies. Uh, maybe it's just the universals between various religions but uh, for instance um, with Buddhism the Four Noble Truths um, there is suffering which is caused by the illusion of separateness Melkor introduces suffering through discord uh, which is rooted in the his illusion of separateness he wants to be separate he wants um, to be independent he wants to create and have dominion and control over that creation and sort of elevate himself over the rest and play the role of Iluvatar, um, which leads to his fall. Um, so I, I'm, I don't know. I haven't read all the letters of Tolkien. I haven't. Um, there's so much material. But um, have you read or, or do you think that there's, there's other inspirations? Obviously, he was re- well read. He probably read out, outside of Catholicism. But um, that's just a question of curiosity. Yeah, um, let's see. I'm trying to figure out how to respond to this in an orderly way. Uh, on the one hand, yes, certainly. Um, uh, you know, are there other worldviews other than the Catholic worldview which impacted him? Yeah, I mean, I would say number one among those is uh, the Norse worldview. Um, he uh you know he knew and loved the writings of many non-christian traditions um and saw the the significance of those i mean if you think this this would be a, a big digression if i were to really try to do it justice so i won't try to do it justice but uh it's uh his his thinking about myth in general and, uh, you know, the sort of the conversations that he and C.S. Lewis and the other Inklings had about myth, you know, they believed in myth and the significance of myth uh, because they see stories um, in many different traditions, which, which are myth, which, which get at truth. And you can see 
truth being expressed and echoed in lots of in lots of different places. So certainly uh, Tolkien and, and C.S. Lewis, both C.S. Lewis, of course, as is usual, um, speaks about this much more much more directly um, in in some of his uh, in some of his Christian writings. Um, that is his nonfiction stuff. Um, you know, C.S. Lewis argues, uh, you know, says that one thing that being a that being a Christian does not mean that you have to believe that all other religions are wrong all the way through. Um, that, but rather, all of them have some glimpse of truth, some some more, some less. Uh, says Lewis. Now, of course, one always has to resist the temptation to take things from C.S. Lewis's books and say he and Tolkien were friends, and so therefore Tolkien thinks this too. Um, it, he and Lewis disagreed about many things. But I don't think they disagreed about this one. Um, they uh, that is about about myth and the nature of myth. So, so in general, are there other traditions that that impact it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, but not, I think, perhaps in a way that we that we might think about in terms that we might frequently think about it. That is, it's not just about like creating a sort of a syncretistic uh, myth out of several different traditions. I don't think Tolkien would have been thinking that way. Uh, just kind of bringing them together. Um, he, you know, does speak in his letters about sort of when it comes to the theology, the fundamental theology of, <clears throat> of his mythology um, that, you know, he 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 does say, you know, there's nothing in his theology which is not fundamentally consistent, uh, you know, with the belief in the Trinity, uh, you know, as it's described in the Bible. So, I mean, he um, he definitely he definitely sees it in that sense. But at the same time, it's not just what he's doing. Here's another way, possibly, to approach it. Uh, this question: It's not sometimes. When people say, when people want to talk about sort of how Christian or how Catholic is Tolkien's uh, world, uh, is Tolkien's mythology, um, sometimes I think what people are thinking about or saying there is, is what Tolkien is doing sort of self-conscious Christian apologetics? You know, is he setting out to say, I'm going to depict Christian theology. You know, I'm, I'm gonna, I'm gonna try to uh, describe Christian theology in a way that sort of makes it more accessible. C.S. Lewis does this. You know, but uh, and and I think I mean the Chronicles of Narnia are a really prime example. One of the things that C.S. Lewis is wanting to do in the Chronicles of Narnia, he is using, uh, he is telling stories, but he is also using the stories as a vehicle. He is, uh, you know, using them as a way to sort of get at ideas imaginatively that are really hard to explain. Just to use one simple example, um, the repeated doctrinal concept in the Chronicles of Narnia about Aslan not being a tame lion, right? Uh, all of the discussion, and you see this, I've just been reading the Chronicles of Narnia with my son, Nicholas, who's seven. Um, and so I've been really noticing this. Whenever Aslan comes in, and you look at the way that the characters respond to Aslan, Lewis is very self-conscious. You know, he is very self-consciously working out um, the you know his his ideas about the nature of God and the relationship between humans and God uh, and what that's like through the character of Aslan, um, Tolkien is Tolkien doing something like that in some sense yes in some sense no in, in some sense yes in that like you know I mean there's Iluvatar is Iluvatar God well yes yes he is in 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 one sense um, this is certainly the Ainulindale does work out you know, many aspects of Christian theology in some really clear ways. But is he setting out to do it in the way that 
Lewis was? No, he wasn't. He, uh, Tolkien was not an apologist. And in fact, it's one of the things that was a real source of tension between Lewis and Tolkien. Tolkien was not comfortable with what Lewis did. He didn't think it was Lewis's place. Lewis wasn't a priest. Um, and he did not think it was Lewis's place as a layman uh, to step forward and be like trying to explain theology to everybody. Um, and he had no interest in that himself. So I don't think he's being self-conscious about it in that way. It's not like he is trying to convey to his readers these theological concepts, but nevertheless, those things are definitely there. Um, so yeah, I, I think that that's, that that's something that that's important to remember. Because um, again, I think that sometimes people oversimplify the situation when they want to say like, is this you know, is Tolkien's mythology a Christian mythology or is it, uh, or is it, you know, also other, uh, uh, from other belief systems as well. Um, he was subcreating. He was making, he was making a mythology. He was doing, to use the word that he coined, he was doing mythopoeia. He was wanting to write myth. Um, does that mean he is telling a Christian story? No, not in the sense of apologetics, not in the sense of like, I am going to try to explain Christianity, but were the ideas that he was pointing to Christian ideas? Well, yes, because he was still what writing myth meant was pointing to truth, the truth, which Tolkien believed <laughs> Catholicism pointed to. And so in that sense, yes, of course they're, they're Christian, they're Catholic, they're deeply Christian and Catholic. Um, so anyway, uh, that's sort of a long, a long answer to that. Um, we should probably wrap up soon, but uh, Mike, uh, go ahead. Hi. Uh, I had a question about the passage that begins, and this habitation might seem a little thing to those who consider only the majesty of the Ainur. Um, it, it refers to the, the, uh, the pillar, the bitter, bitter than a needle, the summit, the cone. I read through that a couple of times, and I just could not make sense of that. What's going on in that in that passage? <laughs> yeah, that's a good question. That passage is a little bit uh, confusing. Let's see. Uh, what page are we on? I'm on page seven, but I'm not in the edition you're on. Oh, yeah, it's, yeah, uh, yeah, you're in a different edition. It's the, the paragraph that begins, Now the children of Iluvatar are elves and men, the firstborn and the followers. Right, right. Okay, great, great. Got it. Thanks. So let me just back up a little bit here. And amid all the splendors of the world, its vast halls and spaces, and its wheeling fires, Iluvatar chose a place for their habitation in the deeps of time and in the midst of the innumerable stars. And this habitation might seem a little thing to those who consider only the majesty of the Ainur and not their terrible sharpness. Now, just stopping there, what he's saying is, the, the, the initial premise is this little planet. Okay. Um, one thing to keep in mind, um, and this you can see, uh, although Tolkien is not doing apologetics like C.S. Lewis was, he still is existing in the same place that Lewis was and part of the same culture and reading many of the same books and, uh, and magazines and taking part in many of the same debates kind of privately. If you read a lot of C.S. Lewis, one of the things that he – as an apologist, one of the ideas that Lewis uh, responds to a lot is the objection against Christianity, which was really popular in the first half of the 20th century, which was – since now we know that we are all – that you know, Earth is just this one tiny little insignificant planet circling around this one uh, uh, insignificant star in the middle of a vast cosmos, you know, how can we think that like there is 
transcendent significance to anything that happens on this one little speck of dirt. Um, that was a very a very popular um, objection to Christianity, as I say. And Lewis responds to this objection many, many, many times in his writings. And I think you can see the same kind of thought in Tolkien here. Um, he's saying, amid all the splendors of the world, um, and when he says the world here, capital W, I don't think he means the planet here. He means the universe. When uh, What is Ea? Ea is not just a planet. Ea is the physical universe, right? I mean, the whole thing that uh, all that all that is is Ea has been brought to being. So the vision and everything this this is for 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 all of the cosmos, really. So amid all the splendors of the world, the whole cosmos, it's uh, cosmos means world. Uh, it's vast halls and spaces. It's wheeling fires. So here we're looking at the the, the you know the the in, in all of the galaxies and all of the known universe, Iluvatar chose a place for their habitation in the deeps of time and in the midst of the innumerable stars. Now we're talking about the planet. Okay. This habitation, the planet, might seem a little thing to those who consider only the majesty of the Ainur and not their terrible sharpness. Right? So he's saying it might seem weird, right, that given A, that we have these vast uh, beings, and, and we get this sort of glimpse here, um, this sort of reminder uh, this brief from the children of Iluvatar's perspective on on uh, the whole creation process, because uh, the, the, with the story focusing on Iluvatar and the Ainur, it can sound like you know a sort of a private party and like everybody is everybody sort of operating on a similar level and and sort of on our level. Thinking back again to the point that Jack made way earlier about the metaphors and the ways in which this story is being accommodated to the comprehension of and the experience of mortal beings. You know, it's being told in their terms. But we get this reminder here. Uh, by the way, yeah, the Ainur, these are like phenomenal cosmic powers, right? These 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 beings are so spiritually massive. You know, they're so they, – they have such enormous stature that it seems hard even to imagine a whole bunch of them coming and living on this tiny little planet when this planet is only one speck out of this whole huge creation, which is itself – uh, a an embodiment of their song, right? They conceive the whole the whole thing. Um, so he's addressing in this passage. Okay, so it might seem odd, it might seem strange, it might seem incomprehensible that these great all of these great cosmic powers like the Valar would descend onto this little speck of dirt. But he says so. This habitation might seem a little thing to those who consider only the majesty of the Ainur and not their terrible sharpness. How sharp are they, right? Um, as who should take the whole field of Arda for the foundation of a pillar and so raise it until the cone of its summit were more bitter than a needle. So he's sort of comparing it. Um, what are the Valar like? Well, the Valar are, they're like a mountain, okay? A mountain whose base, <clears throat> or a pillar, he says, but I mean, it's like a mountain because they're a cone, um, who, whose base is as wide as the whole planet, but then it, it, you know, it soars up and it tapers, but it doesn't just... It's not just massive. It also gets down until its point is as, is as, is as bitter, is as sharp as a needle. Um, they are – well, it's not – they're very small as well as very big. Um, they are 
they come down to a fine point. And so if you consider that sort of visual metaphor of the huge, broad, planetary base of the pillar and the needle-sharp point of the top of the pillar, and he's saying both of those things are the Valar. The Valar are both of those things. They are as broad and strong and huge and powerful as the planetary base of that imaginary pillar, and they are also as fine, sharp, detailed, um, and precise as the needle tip of that same pillar. Um, and then he, he continues on, or who consider only the immeasurable vastness of the world, which still the Ainur are shaping, and not the minute precision to which they shape all things therein. That is, when you think of the Valar, he says, think not only of galactic structure and, uh, uh, you know, and, and, and huge, huge astronomical distances, think also of the structure of cells, you know, think also of some subatomic particles. Um, all of those things are the thought of the Ainur. They are involved not only in the greatness of the big picture that shows how big and huge they are, but also in the meticulous detail of the tiniest microscopic and subatomic things. Um, so he says, if you think about the Valar's being in that way, they're not just huge things which would overlook the Earth entirely. They don't overlook anything. Um, they are also involved in the finest fine-tuning of every speck of everything. Um, so, again, and again, all of this is in the context of, so why would it make sense for them to co come and live on a planet? Well... This is why it makes sense for them to live on a planet, um, because it is not it is not absurd uh, when compared to their overall being. Um, yeah. <laughs> yes, and Justin, you are right. Yes, I, I did make both an Aladdin reference and a Princess Bride reference. So I think I'm done now. I think that uh, I think that I, I should uh, I think I should I should I should end on that triumphant note. Uh, not uh, not exactly higher than the firmament and deeper than the abyss, but uh, uh, you know. <laughs> but there it is. All right. Well, <clears throat> it's quarter after eleven, and I still have to grade some exams, so we should probably go. But uh, thanks very much, everybody, for participating. This has been a lot of fun. I look forward to uh, the Valaquenta next week. So the Valaquenta, of course, is pretty short, but we'll do a lot of names and really be there looking at the nature of the Valar and uh, and how everything's go together. So um, make sure – come prepared with questions if there's stuff that you definitely want to talk about, especially – our opening stuff, uh, simple questions, clarifications, names, pronunciations, lots more pronunciations to happen, I think, uh, in the Valaquenta. So thanks, everybody, and we'll sign off now. Good night, everyone. Okay, special thanks to David Kale for undertaking the long and thankless task of editing these sessions for the podcast. The next session of the seminar was scheduled for a week later, but I should be able to post the audio recording of it in less than a week, hopefully by New Year's. Thanks for listening, and Godspeed.